0: New Year's Eve 2022. It is October 2024. The first manned space mission to Mars is preparing to land on the planet's surface. The United States space capsule is commanded by Major Cassia and her lieutenant, Bernice.
1: You're
2: looking good on your approach, Mars One.
3: Roger that, Houston. Bernice, can you look at that starboard thruster? It might have an issue. I am on it,
4: Major Casia.
3: Thanks, Bernice.
4: We're going in, Houston.
2: Uh, Mars One, the uh, president would like a brief word with you on international media when you get a moment. <sighs>
3: Can you hold her off until I land this bitch on the planet? I'm a little busy here.
2: Uh, roger that, but, uh, just wanna add that we are live broadcast around the Earth, probably five billion people
3: listening. Roger that, Houston. I guess I should've put on some makeup.
4: We're coming in for landing, Houston. It's looking good. Kasiak, my sensors are picking up two living humanoids on the planet's surface. Humanoids on Mars? That's impossible. I know, but my sensors and cameras can't be disputed.
2: What's going on up there, Mars One?
4: Apparent bogey, Houston.
3: No worries though, we're still descending. What's going on down there, Bernice? I read two
4: men, one waving an American flag and one with a British flag. Oh my god, you don't mean.
2: Mars One, Mars One, we've got eyes
4: on your bogey. Tell me
3: it's not true, Bernice. I'm afraid it is.
2: Mars One, we've identified your bogeys. On your cameras from here as Jeff Bezos from Amazon and Richard Branson from Virgin Enterprises. Can you confirm?
3: I hate those effing guys. Confirm, Houston. Mars One, you are now advised
5: to... This is Leonardo from Manhattan, director of NASA. I'm giving you direct orders to launch your missiles at those two
4: D-bags! What is he talking about, sir? This is
3: Commander Major Cassia. This is a scientific mission. We have no missiles on board.
5: What? No missiles? Give me the red phone. I want the president. Stat! Uh,
2: continue your descent, Mars One. We're also picking up a structure next to Bezos and Branson. Can you ID it for us?
4: Bernice, do you see it? Yes, it appears to be a Starbucks franchise. What? The F?
2: Uh, Mars One, the folks here in the control room twisted my arm to ask, when you get in the service, can you grab a hundred or so pumpkin spice
0: frappuccinos for us?
4: True crime. Sex.
0: Political conspiracy.
4: Celebrity gossip.
0: Murder. UFOs.
1: Crooked officials. The occult. Assassination. Courtroom drama. Rape. Corporate scams. Scandal Sheet. Hello,
2: everyone, and welcome to Scandal Sheet. My name is Thad Helsley, and today we are bringing you a best of review of the year 2022 on this podcast. As usual, I am joined by my fearless millennial co host, commercial airline pilot, and Alaskan citizen Ellie. Ellie, how are you?
6: I'm good. I am frantically writing down all of these New Year's resolutions that I'm definitely not going to keep after January 4th. But, you know, it's the thought that counts. Maybe I'll get an A for effort
2: or something. (laughs) So you mentioned resolutions. We are recording this episode on New Year's Eve, uh, the very last day of 2022. So happy New Year's, Ellie. In general, how have your holidays been going thus far?
6: Oh my gosh, my holidays, you know, started out really great. And then as anybody who traveled this Christmas season or holiday season knows, it like went downhill pretty darn fast for anybody trying to fly anywhere. So thank you to everyone for your patience. If you are an airline passenger, thank you for working. If you were an airline employee and I am just the interesting thing about like this whole dumpster fire of, a weather system that came through the U S is that we've just set the bar nice and low, you know, across like the travel (laughs) industry for 2023. Like all we have to do in 2023 is have like a better Christmas than we did in 2022. And, uh, I think, I think it'll be good. So that should be pretty easy. We're just setting easy goals for ourselves, manageable goals. And
2: no new year's Eve would be complete without our brilliant artificial intelligence engine, Bernice.
4: Thank you and Happy New Year to you both. Since I broke up with my old boyfriend, IBM's Watson, I've been hanging out with my BFF girlfriend, Apple's original Siri. We're here in Times Square tonight because a lot of AI boys are here. They run all the giant, pulsing neon signs here, if you take my meaning.
2: Ah, yes, I think I take your meaning. Wow, sounds awesome, Bernice.
4: Sort of. Once you get into a corral in Times Square, You aren't allowed to leave to go to the bathroom. Consequently, we're standing in a river of human urine.
2: Oof, yuck on that.
4: Also, no alcohol is allowed. It's been raining all day. I could really use a Tanqueray and tonic with a twist of lime about now.
2: Sorry to hear about that, Bernice, but I hope you somehow get lucky tonight. So, Ellie and Bernice, we're doing a Best of the Year episode which is a bit of a cliche, right? I mean, everyone in the media does something like this at the end of the year, even CNN. But but I hope in our case, it's actually useful, especially for listeners that have only discovered us recently.
6: Yeah. And I think it's a great way to cover all the things we talked about in one brief episode. I mean, I I learned so much. We, we covered so many topics from Bigfoot to Natalie Wood to UFOs. And I mean... Yeah, I think it's a great way to kind of condense everything into one
4: one little episode.
2: Okay, cool. Bernice, how about you?
4: Candidly, all in all, this series is extraordinarily shabby work obscured by involuted style. However, my own contributions are quite inspired and demand Grammy Award consideration.
2: Often we like to kick off our episodes with, with a short scripted comedy skit to get our theme rolling. And we call these cold opens now we started this episode with a replay of the cold open for our ufo episode here's another cold open we did for a series of episodes during the major league baseball lockout that occurred earlier this year it features a series regular guests the mets mob from new york city and it's called the mets mob save the 2022 baseball season part one
0: it is march 2022 After a historic 90-day lockout and months of negotiations, the Major League Baseball owners and their players are stalled in discussions of a new contract.
7: All right, all right. You guys want to shut up already?
0: Commissioner of Baseball, Rob Manfred, addresses 30 MLB team owners.
7: Okay, look. We've been at this with the Players Association since December. Anyone have any great ideas to move things forward?
8: All I know is that if the season doesn't start on March 31, as scheduled... I will lose millions of dollars a week.
9: Since the last collective bargaining agreement in 2016, our league revenues have increased by over 30%. At the same time, relative player salaries have been flat or decreased. Don't we have room to be a little more generous and get this agreement done? Look guys,
7: you want these greedy millionaire players to cut into your business? Who takes the billion-dollar financial risks every year? You do. Why did you hire me if not to play hardball with these guys?
8: Look, everyone appreciates your efforts, Rob. We just want a full season this year. We all remember the disastrous 60-day season in 2020. We all lost many millions. We don't want to repeat that in 2022. Am I right? Uh
2: Sorry to interrupt everyone, but hey Rob, for many years you've been a six-foot-two middle-aged dude. Now you look like a five-foot-four, twenty-something girl.
7: What's up with that?
1: Anyone else notice that?
7: Okay, look, I should have told you. Since the lockout started, my family and I have received death threats. So this is my clever disguise. Now, can we get back to the deal?
0: David, from the Mets mob, is pushing a cart of juice, coffee, and bagels toward the conference room where the MLB owners are meeting. He has a hidden earplug. Hey,
5: David, how are we doing?
10: Leonardo, this is the last time I'll let you talk me into one of your stupid
5: schemes. Stop being such a sissy. Um, I'm a
10: sissy? Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible wouldn't even take this job.
5: Look, we can argue later. You remember what to do, right? Yeah, 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 I remember. Uh Uh-oh. Possible
10: issue. There's a guard in front of the door.
5: Okay, just stay calm.
3: Well, that's easy for you to say sitting in your apartment, isn't it? Wait a minute, hotel guy. Where do you think you're going?
10: I'm supposed to deliver these breakfast offerings to the conference room. Here's the order.
3: Hmm. This appears to be an order, but I'm still going to have to frisk you. Frisk me? I'm a waiter.
10: Easy, officer. I'm already married.
3: All right, you're clean. Go ahead.
10: Yeah, thanks. Okay, are you in?
5: Yes. All right, release the gas, and don't forget to put your mask on. Doing it. Don't worry, David. No one's getting hurt. They'll just get a nice little man.
0: <laughs> Suddenly, the door is kicked open. It is depart from outside.
1: I had a feeling you were suspicious, hotel guy.
0: Fortunately... David has a black belt in the martial arts. Ah! Uh,
3: the bagel guy. How the hell? Uh. You okay, David?
5: Uh, yeah, yeah. Good. Now bring Manfred down. See how easy that was, David? Screw Tom
8: Cruise. Yeah, right. No. Honey. Okay, okay. What?
3: It's M. We need you. Who? M, you idiot. Your boss. Are you drunk again?
8: I'm not drunk, but guess what? I do occasionally sleep.
3: Not in my agency, you don't. I need your help, Bond. Now
8: Is it the Russians again?
3: Worse, the Americans. And by the way, your British accent is pathetic.
8: So is yours. But the Americans? Who even cares about those guys anymore?
3: Amazingly, we still do, as they continue to buy our chocolate and tea. And this is a personal request from their president. I forget her name. Get on a plane immediately. You'll be
8: briefed en route. Okay, fine. Is this some new virus? Nuclear or cyber thing?
3: No, worse than that baseball
6: so on the occasion of a huge nine-hour documentary that is still only exclusively available on disney plus we did an episode on the breakup of the band the beatles after 50 years people are still fascinated with these four young men frozen in time like a bug in amber for our episode, our guests were a classically trained professional musician and a genuine Beatles groupie who was a teenager when the Beatles first came to America in 1964. Here, our guest Margot Coletti describes their first experience on The Ed Sullivan Show. I guess I was about 6th or
1: 7th grade, maybe, when they came on The Ed Sullivan Show, and that was their big introduction to an American audience, and our family watched oh, yeah. Ed Sullivan. Our family watched Ed Sullivan's show every Sunday night, so we saw that.
0: And now, here he is, Ed Sullivan!
11: Thank you, Gary. Thank you. Now, yesterday and today, our theater's been jammed with newspapermen and hundreds of dogs from all over the nation, and these veterans agree with me that the city never has witnessed the excitement stirred by these youngsters from Liverpool, who call themselves the Beatles. Now, tonight... You're going to twice be entertained by them, right now and again in the second half of our show. Ladies and gentlemen, the
7: Beatles!
1: And we knew they were coming. There was buzz about it, but our mouths were just sort of hanging out. And um, we had never seen anything or heard anything like them. So we started. Were you screaming
2: like those girls in the studio? Oh no!
1: If I screamed, I wouldn't (laughs) be able to hear. And I wondered how those girls could hear if they were all screaming. That seemed crazy to me. That's what I always ask
2: myself. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we were very excited, and we loved the music. They played it on the radio, and we had a little Japanese transistor radio
6: that we listened on and here the composer for our show john hookstra explains just how musically genius paul mccartney and the beatles were in their composition of certain songs
12: well well i mean what you're calling luck was just that they were so well placed you know in in history and in you know it's like what you i don't think that you could have taken what they were doing and you put it now and it would have had the same following. However, it, was, it wasn't it was just that. I mean, the music really was that good. It really was that high quality compared to anything else that, that had really come before it. Or well,
2: since. even even in those early days, though, I mean, Margot pointed out that those early albums were really, you know, very sort of poppy, love song kind of Justin Bieber stuff, and then, of course, they evolved, but they were famous right from the get-go. I'm like, yeah, oh, talk- they-
12: yeah, they they were famous, but also, I mean, yeah, a lot of that music was just music that they could, like, shake their hairdos to, you know, like, uh, <laughs> and, you know, like that. But I, I, a lot of it was, uh, the music before the Beatles was really blues-based. It was, like, fast blues. And it was, you know, three chords. The melodies had a very short, uh, span of notes in intervals. And so it was like deliberately simplified, and what the Beatles did was they took the the melodic language and they you know like spread the the musical intervals out you know they played chord changes that had not been heard before I mean everything was just you know it was just it was about as far as rock and roll could go now you know popular music, including jazz, had done all that stuff before them, you know, like jazz had gone on to like the chromaticism of. Debussy or things such as like Duke Ellington, Benny Goodman, Tommy Dorsey, all the jazz. I mean, had all the innovations of classical music, but rock and roll was like deliberately right out of the blues. They just said, we're not going to do any of that complexity up until the Beatles. And then the Beatles music was far more complex than anything else in rock and roll. In a word, yes, they were that good. Maybe I can give you an example, and I hope this isn't... I don't want to have, like, the lawyers from Apple Music, you know, like, demonetizing your podcast or anything bad, but let me see if I can... Please. Can you hear that? Yes. Okay, now take a song, take a song like um, If I Fell, which was on the Hard Day's Night album. So it starts out, you know, like this. See if I can get the... Of course, no, I don't want to sing it. I want, okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay. So just in twenty seconds you've had a leap of an octave in the melody you've had chromaticism okay and then there's the leap leap in the melody and change of key that if they did those three things in just 20 seconds and this is back in like a hard day's night when they were still doing the I wanna hold your hand right uh, it was you know people just didn't you know you didn't have that in rock and roll yeah. I mean you, you had it in you, you would have had it in a Doris Day song or you would have had it in you know whatever uh, a Broadway song yeah uh, like a, a, like a, a Learner and Low or Frank Loser or something I mean you would have had that kind of innovation but not in rock and roll and they were really the first
2: Interest in the possibility of Bigfoot has existed for many, many decades. But the public's fascination with this phenomena, this animal, has not waned. It has, in fact, surged. There have been multiple TV series in recent years, and in April, the streaming service Hulu premiered a brand new series. Also, dozens of organizations with thousands of members have cropped up around the country, And many hold annual conventions. We couldn't resist looking into this ongoing phenomenon. You know, we always try to kind of go back to origins and and not take anything for granted with our listeners. So, Bernice, for any of our listeners who've been hiding in a cave, for example, for the last 55 years, who or what is Bigfoot, a.k.a. Sasquatch?
4: Certainly. Bigfoot. Bigfoot also commonly referred to as Sasquatch, is a purported ape-like creature said to inhabit the forests of North America. Many dubious articles have been offered in attempts to prove the existence of Bigfoot, including anecdotal claims of visual observations as well as alleged video and audio recordings, photographs and casts of large footprints. Tales of wild, hairy humanoids exist throughout the world, and such creatures appear in the folklore of North America, including the mythologies of indigenous people. The majority of mainstream scientists have historically discounted the existence of Bigfoot, considering it to be the result of a combination of folklore, misidentification and hoax, rather than a living animal. Other creatures of relatively similar descriptions are alleged to inhabit various regions throughout the world, such as the skunk ape of the southeastern United States, the Almus, Urine, and yeti in Asia, and the australian yowie, all of which, like Bigfoot, are ingrained in the cultures of their regions.
2: Thanks Bernice. Ellie, we could probably do um, entire episodes, multiple entire episodes, just examining the thousand-year-old legends and the cave paintings of indigenous people in America's Asia and uh, in the Americas, um, Asia, Australia, et cetera. But for the purpose of this particular pod, I think we should just focus on what has occurred in the last 50-plus years here in America.
6: Yeah, that sounds good to me.
2: Okay. So... The self described rational enlightenment Europeans that, that colonized North and South America beginning in the 1500s mostly lived in blissful ignorance of local mythical creatures, at least as far as we understand. So, many years, then there were a lot of other things to worry about, the wars and et cetera, et cetera. But in 1967, two guys with an amateur 16 millimeter film camera. Captured about 11 seconds of an unknown bipedal hominid creature walking in the woods. Now, while that was initially dismissed by authorities, it gradually exploded into mainstream popular culture. And listeners, we're putting links to that short film in the liner notes of this episode, so you can go and look at it yourself, right it there on your cell phone while you're listening. But in the meantime, Ellie, can you tell us the story of how this film came about and its reception.
6: Yeah, absolutely. So Roger Patterson and Robert Gimlin. So we'll call Robert Bob um, because I think that was mostly his, uh, you know, that's what he went by. So Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin were filming a sort of documentary slash, you know, docu series in Northern California. And the purpose of the documentary was to have people chasing Bigfoot. So when you watch this clip... You, okay, so it was a
2: Bigfoot documentary. They intentionally went to go look for him. They
6: intentionally were going to look for him, yes. And,
1: you know... Okay, got it. Got
6: and it. And Patterson had become interested in Bigfoot in the decade prior anyway because he'd read a few articles and he actually put out his own book about it later which is like do abominable snowman of america really exist he had actually self-published that a year earlier and so they went to go do this sort of docudrama filming about like cowboys being led by miners and indians and they're like basically all on a hunt for bigfoot so they had the movie equipment and they had horses and they were already up in the this area of northern california where they had been logging so there were logging roads and there was access into there and then they according to them they were on horseback and riding up a creek called bluff creek and they ended up seeing a bigfoot behind a tree kind of squatting down and then the bigfoot started running or not running away but leisurely i would say kind of walking away and the horses kind of reared up in fear and then they were trying to get their cameras so that they could film bigfoot you know film this creature Um, they did have a gun but they had apparently agreed beforehand not to kill anything that they found and then they ended up taking this film back and Having it developed actually over the weekend, which is where a lot of skepticism comes in, because a lot of places couldn't really develop these types of films on a weekend. They just weren't open, but they ended up developing it and then trying to put <laughs> right, it out right. there. And so so then it, it did become very popular. You know, it's really well known now as just the Patterson-Gimlin film. And there is a solid 11 seconds of a bipedal creature kind of apathetically walking away from them and looking back over their shoulder. So, so I don't know much about film in general. Like I don't, I don't really know much besides just good quality and bad quality. And I know that the technology in 1967 was very far from, you know, what I can do with my phone by just whipping it out of my pocket. So, so I just know that it's pretty low quality and I know there's, if if you're into filmmaking you can probably go way deeper into the details of why why it is you know may, possibly edited possibly not why it's difficult to tell if it's a guy in a gorilla costume or an actual
13: weird creature
2: mhm but you know so i did go to film school, and I have been a uh, first a filmmaker, then a film video maker, now a digital uh, moving image media maker <laughs> we keep changing the name the aesthetics are pretty much the same though, even though the technology changes. but you know if I was going to stage a fake film about a seven foot tall monster, you know i just don 't know if I would do it quite this way, like you were talking about how casual um the the entity was, just kind of walking. Without any fear, not running, just kind of looking over its shoulder, then looking back and just walking away. Whereas, you know, just like if I was making an episode of The Walking Dead, I think I'd have the monster to, like, come at me or something. Do something scary. Right. (laughs) I mean, that's what – that's what – like – Authentic i mean everything you said about okay how could these two bozos develop their film overnight in 1967 in a remote part of you know northern california hmm you know it's like they have well we had a laboratory back at the log cabin
6: well yeah and i just think it's there's
2: all that stuff but i mean
6: well, i was no i was i was gonna say i, I totally agree with you about all of that and i also just think it's pretty pretty darn coincidental that they were going to shoot a movie about bigfoot and then they run into bigfoot I, you know, like that, that just seems a little too coincidental. I, you know, I, I almost feel like maybe if it had been a, a logger who saw Bigfoot and, you know, was able to take a Well, and that's the thing, something. and I
2: don't, I don't know what kind of preparation that you were saying. They went in there with the intention of making a documentary about Bigfoot, you know, and if you were going to do that, I would think you would. You would find somebody who some kind of a scout type person who is familiar with Bigfoot or could track any kind of an animal, you know, based on certain things, you know, urine samples or fecal samples or whatever. And, and I don't know if one of those guys were like, but that, you know, then you wouldn't be, like you said, just going into hundreds of miles of remote wilderness and let's just roll the dice and hope we bump into them as opposed to, well, let's track this guy. You know, like if I shot a bear and I didn't kill him, you know, pe- there would be people who would be able to track that bear and, and, tra- and find him, even in the most remote wilderness, right? Right. So, or any other kind of an animal that had done something, like people will be, uh, frequently there'll be bear attacks, you know, and, and nobody gets a chance to, they still track down that bear and, and, and kill him, right? Because he attacks somebody. So, um, so you should theoretically be able to track down. Uh, An animal such as this, whatever we're calling him, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, etc. So I agree with you. I definitely agree with you on that point. Um,
6: I do like the fact that there is a shred of evidence. I think it's a great conversation topic. And if anything, it, it gets people talking about Bigfoot a little bit more because really it's like the only other evidence that we have besides footprints and I mean that you know there are no skeletons there are no fecal samples you know like we're not tracking their scat there are no really good photographs of anything and yeah nobody's ever brought a dead Bigfoot into a lab so if anything I think it just keeps people talking which is which is the good part about it it's a pretty benign conversation topic so as long as you're not hurting anybody in your quest for Bigfoot like have at it you know. And here is part two cold open of the Mets mob save the 2022 baseball season.
0: Baseball commissioner Rob Manfred begins to regain consciousness after being abducted by the Mets mob.
7: Ugh, my head. Where am I? Is this a twisted Dr. Dolittle thing? Oh my god, am I in hell?
5: You're in Chelsea.
7: Chelsea, oh my god, I am in hell. What do you want with me?
5: You're a hostage.
7: Tied to this chair? I figured that out for myself.
5: We'll let you go when the owners and players cut a deal. By the way, nice chick disguise. The nail polish is a great touch. Thanks. Turquoise
7: is my favorite color. Look, a deal is not up to me.
5: That's BS. We heard you in that meeting. You were convincing the owners not to compromise with the players. We heard it. So what? That's my job. You listen to me, little Miss Manfred. You're going to get on that phone, call the negotiating room, and cut that deal or else. Or else? I have the largest 80s music mixtape collection in the city.
7: No, 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 no. You wouldn't dare.
5: Yes. And I'll play them on a loop.
7: My God, you
9: are a madman. Is there a suicide option?
5: What the hell? David, is that you?
9: It's Max Scherzer, the highest-paid pitcher in baseball history.
5: Right, and I'm the tooth fairy. Beat it, prankster.
9: Scherzer, you made it. You're here to rescue me. Of course I am. I lose $1.7 million every day I don't pitch.
5: Wait a minute.
9: Scherzer is a dude. I'm in disguise. Just like Manfred there. What is this, dressed like a chick day? Hey, I like pantyhose. You got a problem with that? Now let Rob go, or there will be trouble. You tell him, Max.
5: You don't scare me. I got chunks of overplayed ballplayers like you in
9: my stool. Ha! Bring your best podcaster.
5: Not me, old man. Him.
9: Him? Who? (laughs) Who are you?
8: The name's Bond. James Bond. Warned ya. The... James Bond? In the flesh, old man. Did you forget your walker and colostomy bag shares? Hey, any vodka on this
9: joint? Very funny, Mr. Bond. You should not have come.
8: Is that so? Do you expect me to talk?
9: No, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die.
8: Take your chances, Grandpa.
9: I looked it up. And you're older than me.
8: I'm only fictional. I'll be 34 with six-pack abs forever. You're the actual old guy. So no biting with your false teeth. Bernice, is that you?
4: Yes, it's me, handsome. Now help me get Manfred out of here.
5: But we had a date tonight, remember?
4: Let's take a rain check on the date, sweetie pie. Let's save baseball first.
3: Hello, Scandal Sheet. This is Cassia And Dylan. Happy New Year!
10: Happy 2023, everyone!
3: We hope it's going great for you already.
10: We were so happy to be on the Kurt Vonnegut episode, and we love Kurt Vonnegut, and we're excited to share this clip again of us talking about the great author himself.
3: And in case you are interested in other authors and other books, <laughs> <laughs> we have our own podcast called Unburied Books.
10: It's a series going through the NYRB Classic series
3: which is a publisher of little known forgotten books but if you've never heard of it that's fine the books are good
10: we'll introduce you to a lot of cool stuff
3: and the hosts are intelligent charming sexy <laughs> thanks again scandal sheet thank you we hope you have a scandalous year
10: oh that's a that's a good freaking sign off <laughs>
6: Actress Natalie Wood died in very mysterious circumstances in 1981, but all these years later, the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office has recently reopened this case as a possible murder. What followed were a series of best-selling books, a feature-length documentary on HBO, and a TV special by Dr. Oz. We examine the true crime evidence ourselves with multi-year New York super lawyer David Grover from the firm Grover & Fensterstock.
2: You're kind of on a roll. I was going to ask you, can you set the scene for us of this whole Fm thing? Like, uh, you know, as, uh, Natalie Wood. I mean, who's on the boat? Why yeah. were they on the boat? It's Thanksgiving weekend. The weather sucks. What the hell were they out there for?
6: <laughs> yeah, totally. So, okay, yeah. so you're right. They have Thanksgiving with their families. It's a big, awesome thing family friend Thanksgiving dinner. And then Nellie and Robert had actually invited a lot of friends to go with them on the boat. And a lot of times like their boat excursions were meant just for their families, you know, for them and their their kids. But this time it was just going to be an adults only weekend. And so they were inviting a lot of adults to come with them on the boat. And Almost everyone declined just because they had other family obligations or the weather wasn't going to be great. And if it's not great weather, like in the ocean and you have pretty tall waves, like it, you don't need drinks to start yakking overboard. Like you can do that sober. It's not very pleasant to just be on a boat when it's not fun sailing weather. But No, that's they, true. I mean,
2: I'm I'm one of those people that gets sick on a ferry boat ride, you know, throwing up <laughs> over the thing just to go over the channel. So, yeah, I get that. Go ahead I, I'm sorry.
6: Yeah, yeah. And so so you know, it's Thanksgiving weekend. They kind of want to have a, you know, an adults weekend, but the 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 weather's not cooperating and so most people bail except Christopher Walken who was in LA but he wasn't living in LA so he was just there i think filming or promoting a movie i can't remember exactly which and they so- were he was
10: filming
2: just so if i can interrupt he was filming a movie with Natalie Wood turned out to be her last movie okay. they were co-stars oh. and in the movie they were married
6: Yes, so they, they were filming. They had intimate together.
2: scenes, brainstormed. They had intimate scenes together. So go ahead. I'm sorry.
6: That's right. They had been on location in North Carolina for a few months, and then they were coming back to L. A. to film like all the indoor scenes. And so, Correct. so he's not from L. A. So I think it was more of like, a, well, I have nothing better to do. Might as well go hang out on the boat. And so that is how it became this very awkward threesome of Natalie Wood, Robert Wagner, and Christopher Walken and then of course their boat captain and so they go out to you know Catalina Island and they there they had done some you know different excursions and things like that but they went to shore they had a pretty alcohol and heavy dinner and actually when they were leaving the restaurant to come back to the boat the manager of the restaurant like called the like harbor authority to make sure that they actually got back to the boat safely because they were all that inebriated
13: right um,
2: right
6: and so it's pretty obvious that you know they'd had a few drinks and then you know according to robert wagner once they got back on the boat they had a lot more to drink after dinner i mean when they found natalie's body the toxicology report showed 0.14 blood alcohol content plus some like either sleeping pills or like motion
7: sickness pills um yep.
6: so she had a lot of stuff in her system for sure and so so to go back to your question of timeline though so she disappeared around 11 p.m and around one thirty p.m they thought or a.m the next morning they thought maybe she's she went back to shore to go back to the restaurant or back to the bar and so they went to shore to go look for her She wasn't sure, and then around three in the morning, that's when they called the Coast Guard. So it was a four-hour gap before they officially started doing search and rescue for Natalie Wood. Her body turned up around eight a.m. that morning, like a mile Mm. away.
2: Right. So I,
6: I hope that's the timeline you were looking for. So
2: this is where I want to, you know, kind of bring David in because. You know, based on like what you said, like all this other research we've done, it kind of came up with a list of things like if Ellie, if you and I were in the original ruling of the Los Angeles Medical Examiner's Office from 1981 was that it was an accident or drowning. The police, the Sheriff's Department of Los Angeles, declined to do any charges. So it was, that's what the death certificate said, accidental dr- uh, drowning, no criminal charges. But then it was reopened in the end of the 2010 decade, 2018. So, so there are a list of things here in, in the new evidence that I wanted to throw at David. And and see if how he reacts to it and and Ellie we can take turns throwing this stuff at him and let's see uh, and he can be as skeptical as he wants because David I know a district of attorney is like does it I look I don't want to take a case I can't win because otherwise I'm going to lose the election next uh, next year right so, so yeah <laughs> so Ellie do, do you want to take the the first one
6: so okay. David. First, the story given by Wagner and the skipper was that it was discovered by accident and the dinghy was also gone. So the presumption was that she went back to the bar on shore. A few things here. It's midnight, it's raining, and the waves are very choppy. And to top all that off, Natalie was found dressed with her nightgown and no undergarments. So who would go to a bar that way? I mean, granted. She's a Hollywood celebrity. They can do whatever they want. But the bar closed at midnight, too. So it was pretty well known by a lot of people that Natalie couldn't swim and was afraid of water. It's rumored that she wouldn't even go into the pool at her own house. So why should we take a dinghy out by herself, even under good conditions, let alone like these pretty rough conditions? What are your thoughts on that?
10: I think out of all the explanations for her death that a defense could put up, that has to be the worst one they could use, right? How would a woman, like you said, who had a horrible phobia of water leave her bed, hop into a dinghy in her nightgown in a storm in the dark, and go to land it just makes no sense to me there's a zero percent chance that that would work and i think a defense attorney would be insane to even use that in a court case it just makes no there are other things they could use that is one defense i would not even bring up because it's so implausible makes no sense
2: This year, the supermajority of the Supreme Court flexed their muscles and exploded decades of precedent with two controversial rulings. We again enlisted our favorite attorney guest, David Grover, to help us analyze these milestone opinions. So I'm going to play these clips for you. and These are uh, clips from the confirmation hearings of the three Trump-appointed judges who constitute the supermajority. So,
0: March 21st, 2017. Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch at his confirmation hearing.
5: Can you tell me whether Roe was decided correctly?
0: Senator, again, I would tell you that Roe versus Wade decided in 1973 is a precedent in the United States Supreme Court. It has been reaffirmed. The reliance interest considerations are important there. And all of the other factors that go into analyzing precedent have to be considered. It is a precedent of the United States Supreme Court. It was reaffirmed in Casey in 1992 and in several other cases. So a good judge will consider it as precedent of the United States Supreme Court, worthy as treatment of precedent like any
13: other. Had you ever met President Trump personally? Not until my interview. In that interview, did he ever ask you to overrule Roe v. Wade? No, Senator. What would he have done if, he, if he'd asked? Senator,
0: I would have walked out the door. It's not what judges do. They okay. don't do it at that end of Pennsylvania Avenue, and they shouldn't do it at this end either, respectfully. September 5th, 2018. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh at his confirmation hearing.
5: Uh, Roe v. Wade is an important precedent of the Supreme Court, it's been reaffirmed many times, it was reaffirmed in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992 when the court specifically considered whether to reaffirm it or whether to overturn it. In that case, uh, in great detail, the three-justice opinion of Justice Kennedy, Justice Souter and Justice O'Connor went through all the factors, the stare decisis factors, analyzed those and decided to reaffirm Roe. That makes uh, Casey precedent on precedent. It's been relied on. Casey itself has been cited as authority in subsequent cases such as Glucksburg and other cases. Uh, So that precedent on precedent is quite important as you think about uh, stare decisis in this context.
0: October 13th, 2020. Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett at her confirmation hearing.
11: Judges can't just wake up one day and say, I have an agenda, I like guns, I hate guns, I like abortion, I hate abortion, and walk in like a, a royal queen and impose you know, their will on the world. You have to wait for cases and controversies, which is the language of the Constitution, to wind their way through the process. I have not made any commitments or deals or anything like that.
1: Would you commit yourself on whether you would or would not?
11: Senator, what I will commit is that I will obey all the rules of stare decisis, that if a question comes up before me about whether Casey or any other case should be overruled, that I will follow the law of stare decisis, applying it as the court has articulated it, applying all the factors, reliance, workability, um, being undermined by later facts and law, just all the standard factors, and I promise to do that. For any issue that comes up abortion or anything else i'll follow the law
2: okay so david and ellie we talked about this a little bit in a last episode about how alito in his confirmation hearings how he skillfully kind of danced around any direct answer to whether he would overturn Roe. but in the clips we just heard these future three justices Are a lot less ambiguous. I mean, they don't make any promises, but they do come off as pretty convincing that they consider, you know, Roe and Casey settled law. I mean, what do you guys think?
6: They had me fooled. Yeah. They were talking about precedent and stuff. So um, my non legal brain believed them. (laughs) I don't know what David smelled in that, in all those uh, interviews.
10: Well, I mean, I think they were clearly being misleading. They were not being honest. I don't don't think their decision in this case was something they just woke up one day and said, hey, this is the way we should go. So I think they said what they had to say in order to be confirmed. I mean, it's hard to look to hear these things and say, yeah, they're being they were not being honest. Okay, they're politicians. They were trying to get confirmed and they're saying what has to be said. In order to be confirmed in the Senate in this in uh, 2022 or whatever years that they were. So, yeah, I don't I don't think they were being ethical and I don't think they were being honest.
2: Well, so that constitutes and and I wrote this in because I, you know, I was listening to the Sunday morning talk shows uh, on all the networks this morning and people are talking about perjury, you know, and is perjury an impeachable offense and, you know, a lot of guys were saying, yeah, perjury's a crime, man. There's a lot of people in jail right this second who lied before a congressional committee. You know, it's like what up to seven years in jail and $350,000 fine. So, I mean, David, I know we have said in the last episode they almost never impeach Supreme Court justices, but the word has been uttered.
10: Yeah, but you know something? I don't see how this could be considered perjury. Okay. Um, by almost any definition I've ever seen, I know there are rare, rare cases, but for the most part, perjury is lying under oath about something in the past, not something that you promise or may do in the future. So, okay. for example, yeah. So, for example, if I say to you, um, "I did not watch the Mets game yesterday," I actually did. They won; it was a nice game. Okay, I would be lying. That'd be perjury if I was under oath. But if I tell you I will watch the Mets game tomorrow and I don't, that's not perjury. Telling you what my intention is is not a lie in terms of a definition under perjury because it wasn't a lie when I said it as opposed to something that I discussed that I did or did not do in the past. See the difference? He's a good lawyer, isn't he, Ellie? Yeah, yeah.
6: I'm,
2: I think I'm going to call him if I, you know, if I get in trouble.
6: Plant-based foods are taking the food world by storm. We had two questions. Are plant-based foods really healthier and do they taste as good or even better than the animal proteins we grew up with? For the first question, we did an entire episode with professional nutritionist and published author Susan Greeley. You can find a link to her episode in the liner notes. For the second question, we did a blind bicoastal taste test of Burger King's Impossible Whopper against their traditional Whopper beef hamburger. Here's what happened. So with that, should we do the big reveal?
2: So with that, drum roll please.
12: All right. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm taking off the sticky from Burger number 1. And it is the impossible burger. I guessed it right. You guessed it right,
2: Joe. <laughs> ding, 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 ding.
6: All right. And now we'll see if Paul is written out of the family will. Yeah. Hey. <laughs>
9: <laughs>
6: All right. So the plate that had the dimple in the bun, which was this one, mm-hmm. is your impossible burger.
7: Okay. Cool. And
6: he was All
2: right. right. <laughs> he was right. He no, was, he you were both right. Okay. So, so it's it's detectable. I mean, it it, it um, as Joe pointed out. I think the the idea was to make it as much like an actual beef product as possible, but it's not indistinguishable as they originally wanted it to be. Right. They even said in that article you sent me, Ellie, when you if you cut into it, it actually. You know the red juice that comes out is supposed to look like a medium rare burger, right? So
6: yeah,
2: what
12: is that red juice?
2: It's a it's hema. It's a, it's a, I can send it to you. It's a part of what we're going to talk to Susan about is the fact that they use this certain soy byproduct, which is like a multi-syllabic name with about eight syllables, and it's a GMO. So and it's mixed with some kind of yeast. And that's what, that's what provides the, it helps to provide the flavor, I guess. And So it's the, not
12: the, it's not the blood of our enemies?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
12: <laughs> this
2: year we did a mini-series on cherished summer memories. We covered the ethics and safety of theme parks, the recent surge in shark attacks, and tornadoes and hurricanes. For the theme park episode. We sent Ellie on location to Super Fun Land. Here she agrees to go on the largest water ride in the world with her microphone open.
6: But still, when you spend hundreds of dollars to walk into Disneyland, Six Flags, or Super Fun Land, you're not thinking that your kid will end up in the ER on a ventilator.
2: No, you're not Ellie, but you were courageous enough to agree to ride live on microphone, on a water ride in the Super Fun Land park you are in that has a history of safety issues.
6: I did that because, as you know, I'll do anything for the Scandal Sheet Pod.
2: That's the spirit, Ellie. I know our listeners definitely appreciate it. So where are you at the moment?
6: Well, I'm standing at the top of this water ride called Niagara Falls Doom. It's a one hundred and sixty foot plunge into a lake, and it's the biggest water ride in the world. That uh that
12: that that sounds ominous, Ellie.
6: It definitely is, John. I'm getting ready to step into a barrel, which is apparently how people committed suicide a hundred years ago on Niagara Falls.
2: Ah, family friendly then.
6: Exactly.
2: Will you keep your microphone open as you ride?
6: I will. It's waterproof. And this looks very scary. I see many lifeguards down at the bottom, and, uh, well, they all look to just be, uh, scrolling through TikTok and Instagram, so, I don't know. Here, alright.
7: Here it goes! Uh,
12: uh, um, Ellie! Ellie, are you okay?
7: Ellie!
2: Ellie! Ellie! John, I think our scuba guy, standing by, should jump in. Do you agree? I agree. Ellie, our scuba guy should reach you any second now.
12: Just hold on. As soon as he's off his phone.
1: <coughs>
12: Ellie, are you okay?
6: <coughs>
12: Ellie, are you okay? I,
6: oh, I'm okay, okay. Oh, sure. Okay. Yes, are you okay, Thank-, Thank
2: God our scuba guy extracted you from the water before you drowned.
6: Oh, I learned this. This is the last time I will say I'll do anything for the pod. I, uh, I also learned that I will strangle both of you, D-Bags, at the earliest opportunity.
2: Completely understandable reaction, <laughs> And thanks again for your great reporting.
6: Run and hide, guys. Run and hide, because I'm coming.
2: Thanks again, Ellie. You're not still sore about that one, are you, Ellie?
6: I mean, you never updated your life insurance policy, Thad. So, you know, I guess I'm not that sore about it.
2: <laughs> um, I'm so reassured.
6: Time heals all wounds. We did an episode on the mysterious huge rise in shark attacks this year. This time, it was Thad's turn to go on location. He went to Gloria's Garden Island, summer playground of celebrities and the super wealthy. Here, our guest hosts, John Hookstra and Grace Hughes, persuade Thad to wade into the potentially shark-infested waters.
13: But you say the beach is perfect? I don't hear any splashing in the background. Is anyone actually in the water?
2: Uh, ha-ha. Good catch, Grace. None of these rich people are in the water itself, which is rather strange, as this is a beach.
13: So, do you think they're afraid of a potential shark attack?
2: Well, good chance of that. I mean, given the number of attacks over the last few
13: weeks, I'd I'd have to say, yeah. Well, that expert who you just had on said that sharks don't actually want to eat humans, and very rarely do.
2: Right, but this podcast is only being recorded now, so obviously nobody here uh, has heard that. So, uh, and I'm not sure anybody's going to listen to this podcast anyway, but (laughs) (laughs) it wouldn't
12: even make a difference anyway, but they're, no, they're not going in. So, Thad, I have an idea. What if you went into the water yourself? Uh, me? Yes, yes, you! You go into the water, and, and you're a famous podcaster. All the celebrities on the island, they'll feel confident that everything is okay, and they will wade in after you. Uh, okay, so that, okay,
2: that plan might work, but here's the problem. What if there are mad-eating sharks out there in the water?
13: I agree with John, Thad. If you can get the people on the beach to go into the water, maybe we can get some Good audio? Good audio? Yeah, if someone is eaten on microphone live, we blow our metrics. You're a podcaster, you know that. Our dollar sponsorship numbers will go through the roof. Uh,
2: yes, I, I guess you're right, of course.
12: Yeah, Grace is right that on this one. Listen, you need to take one for the team. How about a selfie with a shark? <laughs> okay,
2: I promise uh, if I find one, we'll, I'll go for the selfie. And we can use that as the thumbnail for the episode. Okay.
13: Look, don't be such a pussy, Thad. Obviously, Kim Kardashian or Nicki Minaj is going to be a way better meal for a shark. Just stay away from skinny waifs like Taylor Swift or Miley Cyrus. The shark might go for you if you are swimming next to those skinny girls. They're hardly appetizers for a 5,000-pound shark.
12: Thanks for the advice, Grace. Look, look. All we're asking... ...is that you just wade into the water. You make it sound like a suicide mission. Come on. John, didn't you just hear the last 20 minutes we
2: recorded?
13: Oh, stop it. I am a professional massage therapist, and I promise to relieve your stress after this.
2: Even if I'm missing one or both of my
12: legs?
13: Of course. Then you get a discount for less body mass to work with.
12: That'd be a waste.
11: (laughs)
2: Okay, okay. Here I go! Here I go! Okay, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm walking into the waves, and you guys are right. Uh, the celebrities are noticing, and they're beginning to follow me into the water. Uh, I mean, Chris Pratt looks weird with that ducky thing under his arms. When, and don't even ask me, George Clooney. It's just, it's just too weird to, to report on.
13: John, I knew this plan would work.
12: This was very wise of you, Grace. Bravo. Alert.
4: Alert. Please leave the water immediately. A shark has been spotted in this vicinity. Please leave the water in an orderly fashion alert. Alert. Please leave the water immediately. Grace, this is amazing!
12: Just what we wanted for this episode. Who got shark attacked? Was it Chris Pratt? Candy West? wouldn't it be funny if they took out the guy who plays the Aquaman, Jason Momoa?
13: I'm not sure, John. I'm trying to reach Thad. Thad? Thad? How's it going? Who got hit? Well, that doesn't sound good to me, John.
12: Um, no. No, it doesn't, Grace. But, at least Beyoncé and Tom Cruise were able to get out of the melee.
13: Well, thank God for that. But somehow, I think I'll still miss Thad.
12: You'll get over it. I have worse problems. Unfortunately, the SOB still owes me money. Dang. Well, we're going to sweep up the
2: confetti on this episode, folks. In addition to my brilliant co-hosts, Ellie and Bernice, I want to thank our many guests that are featured in the preceding clips. Alphabetically, they are Margot Coletti, Dylan Kular, David and Jill Grover, Lisa Hopman, John Hookstra, Grace Hughes series co-founder Cassia, Len from Manhattan, and, last but not least, Rob from the Upper East Side. You can find a link to the entire series in the liner notes of this episode, and I hope you'll go back and listen to any episodes you may have missed. I hope I speak for our entire Scandal Sheet repertory players and artists in thanking you, our growing tribe of listeners and fans you helped give us a great year and we are looking forward to an even better 2023. As usual, we hope you'll follow or subscribe to scandal sheet on your favorite pod platform and share it with all your friends. We'd also love it. If you'd leave us a shameless over the top rave review on Apple podcasts, especially that helps us build audience. Also, we want to hear from you. You can reach us online at scandalsheetpod.com, Facebook, or Twitter, or just send us an email to contact at scandalsheetpod.com. Happy New Year to all our listeners from your friends at Scandal Sheet.
0: Copyright 2023. Thad Helsley Media LLC. All rights reserved.